Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Bad Philosopher Podcast. So on today's episode, I want to talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. And I also want to talk about the ideology or the philosophy behind Bitcoin, sort of the ideas at play that keep Bitcoin going and that have sort of led to all of this cryptocurrency mania that we've been seeing over the past several years. Now, I do want to share a sort of a balanced view or a balanced opinion of the cryptocurrency ecosystem and architecture in general here. Um, I don't want to hype up Bitcoin or anything like that, but full disclosure, I do own a little bit of some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and then some small amounts of others. I'm not talking any large amounts here. It's quite modest, small amounts. So for the purposes of transparency, I just wanted to get that out of the way and let you know that I do have a small stake here in cryptocurrency in general. But with this podcast episode, what I'm hoping to do is sort of give a more balanced view of what cryptocurrency is and what Bitcoin is and not hype it up. I mean, in my opinion, should you be buying cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin? I mean, I'm not a financial advisor, but I would say the answer is probably no. Unless you're willing to do the work, do the research to look into these technologies and figure out what they are and what their actual utility is. And when it comes to utility, that is kind of what I want to talk about here. I want to discuss what the utility of cryptocurrencies are and what the purpose of them is. And to get there, I just want to give a basic overview of cryptocurrency in general. So what cryptocurrency is, for the most part, what, we, what we're talking about when we say cryptocurrency is we're talking about a decentralized and secure network of exchange that's native to the internet. It's made basically for the internet. Now, Bitcoin is the first ever cryptocurrency, and a Bitcoin is basically a token that can be transferred between two wallets or addresses. So presumably, person A owns one wallet, and then person B owns a different wallet. And by transmitting a Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin from person A to person B, we're able to facilitate a peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value. Now, the price of an individual Bitcoin is determined externally by having it sort of pegged to global currencies. Most typically, Bitcoin is pegged to the US dollar. Not as a one-for-one -one kind of thing, but Bitcoin has a set price where you can buy a Bitcoin for a set amount of US dollars, and that price fluctuates quite frequently. And it can fluctuate by quite a lot, depending on the volatility of Bitcoin at a given time. Now, there, through a network of exchanges where people can trade dollars for Bitcoin and trade Bitcoin for dollars, the price of Bitcoin is determined here. The price really just denotes what a buyer is willing to pay to gain one Bitcoin or what a seller is willing to sell one Bitcoin for in return for dollars or currency. Now, as of the time of recording this podcast, the price of a single Bitcoin is something like 44,000 US dollars. I think within the past six months, it was as high as like 68,000 US dollars and as low as like 30 something thousand dollars. So the price can fluctuate quite a bit. Now, currently in total, there are almost 19 million total Bitcoins in existence. And if we multiply the price of a single Bitcoin by the total number of Bitcoins that exist, we end up with a figure that's around $850 billion. That means that if you take the value of every single Bitcoin that exists and tally it up, the total cost of all Bitcoins would be around $850 billion US dollars. Now we can also compare the total value of all Bitcoins to the total value of all of the world's gold reserves. It's estimated that there's about $12.5 trillion worth of gold that has been mined and that exists in the world above ground available to be used. 
Comparatively, this would mean that the total value of every Bitcoin that exists is about 7% of the total value of all available gold that exists in the world today. So here what I've done so far is just tell you what the value of Bitcoin is in, in some sense, and it's really arbitrary. But the big question here is what is a Bitcoin? Well, I think we can call a Bitcoin something that is a digital method of exchange that is secure and trustless. It's trustless because no matter what anybody does, they can't take your Bitcoin from you unless they know the password to your wallet. This is very unlike how a bank or government can take money right out of your bank account. With Bitcoin, once you have it, you have it. Custody of your Bitcoin is in your hands. No bank or government can take it from you or interfere. Now, we might be able to call Bitcoin a form of currency. It is able to act like a currency in some ways. But the current technological maturity of Bitcoin doesn't allow it to be used efficiently and effectively as a currency. Transactions in Bitcoin from person to person can be slow and costly. But Bitcoin does act like a great store of value. Some people even refer to it as digital gold. Hence the comparison we just made to the global gold market. Now, Bitcoin does have some fundamental advantages over something like gold. For one, the total availability of gold is not limited. The amount of gold in the world is able to increase as we discover more of it and mine more of it. If we were to suddenly double the amount of gold reserves in the world, then the total value of gold wouldn't go from $12.5 trillion to $25 trillion. We wouldn't be paying the same amount per ounce of gold if we had twice as much gold. Instead, the total value of all the world's gold would stay at around $12.5 trillion, but the price of every single ounce of gold would fall in half. Something like that. Everyone who owned physical gold would see the value of their gold stockpile reduced by some 50% or so if the total amount of gold in the world were to suddenly double. Now, this is unlikely to happen ever. It's not like we're going to suddenly find another $12.5 trillion worth of gold laying around somewhere in some vaults, but you never know. It's not impossible. On the other hand, with Bitcoin, there is a hard-coded technical limit to the total supply. Right now, there are about 19 million total Bitcoins that exist. The supply is increasing very slowly until eventually in the year 2140, the last Bitcoin will be created, will be minted. And at that time, the total number of available Bitcoins will hit 21 million. This is a hard capped supply. Now, the sort of capped supply economics work favorably here for Bitcoin. And this is what a lot of Bitcoin proponents will say. That because there's a limited supply of Bitcoin fundamentally coded into the Bitcoin blockchain, as more and more people use Bitcoin and own Bitcoin, it's expected that the price of each individual Bitcoin will only continue to rise over time as more and more people adopt Bitcoin as a currency or a store of value. Another facet of this argument is that Bitcoin itself has a lot more utility than gold does. Say you own physical gold and you lock it in a safe somewhere. Well, Someone could break into that safe, or any number of things could happen. A natural disaster could compromise the security of your physical gold reserves. Gold is big, it's heavy, it's not easy to move around. If you move to another country, you'd have to figure out how to safely and securely transport all of that gold with you. So gold is very cumbersome. With Bitcoin, which acts sort of like a digital gold, this isn't really a problem. Bitcoin is borderless and location independent. As long as the Bitcoin network continues to exist and you don't lose your cryptographically secure wallet address and your password, you'll always have access to your Bitcoin no matter where you are in the world. 
Now also, gold is not a good medium of exchange. You can't go anywhere and pay for things in gold. And transferring your gold into currency, especially if you have physical gold that you need to sell to someone for some price, that can be cumbersome. It's not the case with Bitcoin. Bitcoin can be used to send payments and remit money to others, and it can very quickly and easily be traded for any other currency in the world at fair market values. There's no foreign transaction fees that apply here. Now, there is a Bitcoin transaction fee, but that's very different from a foreign transaction fee, which might take a percentage or a set um, fee as part of that transaction if you're sending money between different countries, different currencies. It is plausible that at some point in the future, the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency transaction fees will be reduced by a lot in the future so that making these types of transactions make a lot more sense than incurring any sort of foreign transaction fee. So on paper, Bitcoin has quite a lot going for it. It's a better store of value than gold. The total amount of gold in the world is increasing by something like 1.5% per year. By comparison, Bitcoin currently has an inflation rate of something like 1.7% per year, but in 2024, this is actually going to drop by around half to less than 1%. Then in 2028, it will drop again close to like half a percent, and it will continue to drop in half every four years or so until it reaches 0% inflation in 2140. What this means is that as time goes on, there's going to be less and less inflation of Bitcoin, there's going to be less and less Bitcoin circulating and going around. And this plausibly is what might drive price action in the future. If more and more people want to buy Bitcoin, but there's less and less Bitcoin available, that's just going to drive the price up even further. So all in all, Bitcoin is much more convenient than physical gold. Bitcoin can be used as a means of exchange, and it's also completely borderless. You can take it with you anywhere you want to go. And as Bitcoin continues to develop, it's still in very early phases here, but Eventually, it's likely to gain more utility, either Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies that will eventually come out or are already in existence but still also themselves in early stages. The situation with cryptocurrencies in general is sort of like how the internet was 20 to 30 years ago. You didn't have anything like the functionality that you have today. And similarly, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies of today, they don't have all of the functionality that they'll eventually have. They don't have all of the functionality that might eventually allow them to sort of replace the global financial system or at least become a large chunk of the global financial system through this new internet-native digital technology. Now, another way we might want to think about Bitcoin is as an alternative sort of asset class, and this is from a sort of investment perspective. Now, we have different types of assets that store value. There's different asset classes in traditional finance. For example, things like real estate, stocks, bonds, and then commodities like gold. Bitcoin in this way might fill its own niche that's differentiated from these other financial asset classes. Let's look at the pros and cons of real estate, for example. Now, real estate, if you buy a property, it's in a fixed location. It can't move. The value of it is subject to local conditions, natural disasters, and so on, and you have to pay annual property taxes. The utility of real estate is that you can gain rental income and that the price of real estate generally appreciates over time. Now, Bitcoin, by comparison, does not have the rental income aspect, but it is expected to appreciate over time, so that's part of its value. And also the fact that it's borderless and can go anywhere. You don't have to worry about selling your real estate in a specific city or specific location in order to make that financial asset liquid and available to you to use as capital. With Bitcoin, you can bring it with you or you can quickly and easily exchange it for dollars. 
Another example is stocks. So with a stock, you own a piece of a company, but that company that you own, that company can go bust. Now, traditional investors are all over stocks. With stocks, you can see a high return on your investment, but you can also see a total failure. So there is risk here. Stocks have some advantage over property in that they're basically, now these days anyways, they're basically digital assets that you can take almost anywhere, though they do also exist within a given country's financial system and within a given stock exchange. So stocks are not totally location independent and not totally liquid. There's also a risk with holding stocks, just like there's a risk with holding any sort of financial asset. So another asset class we have is bonds, and bonds are fixed income assets that are guaranteed by institutions like banks or governments. Generally with a bond, what you're doing is you're buying this bond for a set price, and then in exchange you're getting a very low but very generally very safe return on that investment. Say you might gain an interest rate of 1-3% to per year or something like that. But here, the return is so small, it is a safe bet, a safe thing to invest in generally, as long as you don't think that a financial institution or that a government is going to fail and the bond is going to go to zero. But here, the return you're getting is based on the idea that the currency itself won't fail or depreciate in value. Bonds here, they aren't very good assets if inflation is very high, which is something that we're seeing these days, because the return on a bond is quite low. Now, in a high inflation environment like we have right now, holding bonds might mean that you're losing money compared to holding any other type of asset. And then the last traditional asset class here is commodities, and gold counts as a commodity. Gold has all of the problems that we talked about before, where it doesn't have any utility and it just sits there inconveniently sort of not doing anything. You should also generally expect to be paying some sort of a price or a fee to store gold. Storage isn't free, and gold has to be stored somewhere, and hopefully somewhere secure. So there is a cost to that. So here we might be able to determine a couple of strong cases for something like Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency as an alternative asset class to gold or any of these other assets. The first advantage it has with cryptocurrency is its extreme portability. The fact that it's borderless and can go anywhere with you, you can take it with you and No one can interfere or take it away from you. It's something that you'll always have literally in your back pocket if that's where you choose to store your wallet. Also, something like Bitcoin might be a good hedge against inflation, but maybe most importantly is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general usually have some sort of built-in utility. They have a better use case than things like gold or other financial assets. Like, they have the ability to be used as a form of exchange or a form of payment, which With gold, real estate, stocks, or bonds, you can't do that. You can't use them as a form of exchange or a a way to send payments. And with cryptocurrencies, this utility of sending facilitating payments is probably going to grow over time as more and more technical infrastructure is deployed and developed around Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies that make making payments a lot easier and more frictionless. Now, these features alone aren't really enough to just make Bitcoin an asset that's worth all of the hype, and that's worth seeing billions and billions of dollars flowing into it all the time. In order to support this kind of hype, what you really need is this promise of crazy returns, the expectation that the price of Bitcoin will continually trend up over time. Now, this expectation is what's driven adoption and increasing prices really functions like a pyramid scheme, and it operates in boom and bust cycles. When prices are rising quickly, people get interested, they see Bitcoin as a sort of a get-rich-quick scheme and they all jump on board. 
people have a fear of missing out, so they start putting money into Bitcoin. As more and more people do this, the price of Bitcoin continues to go up. And the more it rises, the more people get interested, the more it captures attention, and the more people want to get into it. With this, you have more and more people flocking into Bitcoin and sending their money into it to convert their US dollars or whatever currency they have into Bitcoin. And here, price action becomes unsustainable. Eventually, the price of Bitcoin reaches a sort of a peak and then levels out and begins to decline. This is what the cycles typically look like. And this is where the smart money, so people who have maybe been in Bitcoin for quite a while, been around while prices were low, maybe bought their Bitcoin while prices were still fairly reasonable, they're the ones that are usually selling off as the price of Bitcoin is rising and then selling off massively when Bitcoin reaches its peak and is about to hit its decline. And here, this is where all the new investors get into trouble. The people that just jumped into Bitcoin a few weeks ago because of all the hype, they get caught with their pants down. I mean, as quickly as the price went up for them, it comes crashing down. People might lose 90% or 80% of their Bitcoin investment because they got in at the wrong time. And when this happens, this is when Bitcoin mania sort of disappears and things go quiet for a while, rinsing and repeating a few years later. Now, this is how Bitcoin has been operating for like the past decade or so, and this is what's been driving adoption. People thinking that if they can get in at the right time and prices go up substantially, they'll make a huge amount of money. Unfortunately, this probably won't work for most people. In order for some people to get rich off of Bitcoin, a lot of people need to get in and lose money on Bitcoin. Hence the pyramid scheme. Those at the top sort of crush the people on the bottom. And if the people at the bottom want to eventually regain their investment or make some sort of money, they have to hope that more and more people are going to come in to form the bottom of that pyramid, and then you start going up higher and higher and higher as more and more people start coming in. Now, the people that are doing this kind of thing, treating Bitcoin as an investment or a get-rich-quick scheme, they are not the people that are most interested in the technology or the utility of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies at all. They're just interested in the money, basically free money. The idea that you can get higher returns with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin than you can get in the stock market, for example. This is what draws most people in. Very few stick around when prices decline and the hype dies down. So, here is a fundamental problem with Bitcoin. There are different types of people who get into cryptocurrency. First of all, people who get in just to make money. And second of all, people who get in because they're excited about the technology itself and the utility that the technology has. Now, unfortunately, it seems like there's a lot more people that are just looking to get in and make money than there are people who just are interested in the technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Now, I don't want to go too much here into the psychology of this get-rich-quick scheme and the schemes that we see behind lots of different cryptocurrencies out there. And I'm not a financial advisor at all, so do not take anything here as financial advice, but I would say the smart thing to do in, in, in cryptocurrency and anywhere, really, is... That if someone's trying to sell you on something, like the next big thing, the next big cryptocurrency that's going straight to the moon, I would say run for the hills. Be very, very skeptical of people who are trying to sell you on these types of things, especially on the internet. Now my intention with this episode is not to hype Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general. What I want to give is a balanced view, and there are many, many practical concerns with cryptocurrencies in their present form that I do want to address later on. Good reasons why maybe cryptocurrencies aren't the best thing to be getting into. But here, this is where I want to jump into talking a little bit about the philosophy behind Bitcoin and behind cryptocurrencies, most cryptocurrencies in general. 
I want to talk about what is exciting about the technology itself and the ideas behind it and what is driving all of this innovation in the cryptocurrency space. Now, ideology-wise, Bitcoin is inherently political in nature. The politics behind Bitcoin are basically a politics of freedom and liberty, that you should be free to interact with whomever you want, to send funds or money to whoever you want, and to have complete control and custody over your own money, your own finances. And with the internet here, this is sort of a vision of cyber libertarianism. It's borderless and without intermediaries. The only intermediary here standing between you and your funds is the Bitcoin network itself, the blockchain. And it's the blockchain that processes all of the transactions here. In theory, anyways. Now, one of the people in this space that got me most interested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general for their utility was Andreas Antonopoulos. Now, this guy doesn't talk about Bitcoin as some fringe innovation or some get-rich-quick scheme. Rather, Antonopoulos sees Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as the logical next step of the internet. Now, if we look at the architecture of the internet, we can see that it has decentralized knowledge and information. It's also decentralized communication and social interactions with innovations like social media and messaging applications. The internet has also decentralized work through the online gig economy, and it's decentralized education through online courses and online universities. The next logical step here is to decentralize money and finance by building something that is native to the internet, native to the digital world. Now, one could argue here that we've already sort of done this through online banking, through our financial institutions that are now facilitating online transactions, online payments. A lot of banking these days takes place exclusively online. But this is also a problem, is that it's a holdover from the old world. When you have all of your money in your bank account, you don't have control over it. The bank does. The bank here acts as a middle person between you and the person you're transacting with. Now, let's look at the actual technology of the internet here. So, with the internet itself, to access it, all you need is yourself and an internet connection. And with this internet connection, you can effectively communicate with anyone, anywhere. It's totally borderless. And you can access any information you want that's available on the internet. Now, there are some caveats to this. For example, email providers facilitate your emails and messaging apps facilitate your messages, but these platforms can go away, or they can block your communications, or they can ban you from their platform. But you can very easily change platforms, go to a different app or a different provider. There's a lot of different options out there. This isn't so much the case or so simple with something like a bank account. Setting up a bank account can take a lot of time. There's a lot of hassle involved. Transferring funds from one bank to the other takes a lot of time itself. And if for some reason your bank account is frozen or your funds are seized, well then, you're screwed. Now, physical location used to act as a barrier between you and others, but now we have the internet and that barrier has been completely blasted away. Your employer or your place of work used to facilitate you earning a living, but now you can work over the internet. You can work for any company, you can do non-traditional jobs. The university system facilitated you getting a post-secondary education, but now you can do that over the internet, and there are alternatives to big universities that are exclusively online. The brick-and-mortar banks facilitated your personal finances. Now you can do so over the internet, but you have the same few options. Whereas to earn a living online, you can do many different things, many different types of work that are native to the internet. Or when getting an education, you have many different options available to you online. 
You can use alternative platforms that are sometimes even certified in whatever education you're pursuing. When it comes to your personal finances online, we're still being restricted to using the same banks within our own country of residence. The borders on the internet for financial institutions still exist. So we're in this strange limbo system right now where we can access our money and finances over the internet, but they're still being mediated by the big banks, by the brick-and-mortar financial institutions of our own country. It's like if you're allowed to work remotely, but only for the same employer you've always worked for, or say you're able to get an online education, but you can only do so through a traditional university. Nothing is wrong with these things if you choose to do them, but with these other things, there are alternative providers to choose from. You can choose to work a non-conventional job, or you can choose to get an education from some other institution that's not a university. That is not the case yet with finance. And it's not that this is inherently bad, but rather the lack of available alternatives is not ideal. The fact that we used to be able to carry around cash with us, and we still can, but that we don't yet have a cash equivalent that's native to the internet. If we want to pay for something over the internet, we have to use these traditional intermediaries to send those transactions. Now, this is the promise with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in general, that they can act like a sort of internet cash or digital cash that you can transfer to others frictionlessly or bring with you wherever you go in the world. And this is a way to get around these built-in restrictions that are in place with conventional means of finance. Now, when we start to think about Bitcoin and what a digital currency is, what Bitcoin is, it brings up a lot of questions about what money is. It's a philosophical question at the heart of this. And for Andreas Antonopoulos, he says that money is more like a language than anything else, that we use money as a medium to communicate value, just like we use language to communicate ideas. In his book, The Internet of Money, Antonopoulos says, and I quote, As a language... Money is one of the fundamental constructs of civilization that allows us to exceed what's known as the Dunbar number. The Dunbar number is the maximum number of individuals who can operate in a tribe on the basis of acquaintance. If you want two tribes to work together, you need to have some common bond. These bonds have included culture, language, religion, and money. These bonds are a fundamental construct that allow us to exceed the scale of a single tribe and engage in commerce with others on a greater scale. So this is a holistic way of looking at what money is. And here we start talking about things like Bitcoin, which is basically money that's native to the internet. It's built for the internet. It's still money the way we've traditionally used it. It's just got a different architecture to it. And the question we want to answer is, does money have to look like the traditional finance that we are currently using? Or can money take on other forms? Can money look like Bitcoin, which looks a lot more like cash than the current digital infrastructure we have around global finance. Now, money used to be pegged to gold. It was backed by gold, and this was what gave money its value for a long, long time. But at some point, we moved off of the gold standard many decades ago, and this is what a lot of Bitcoin promoters will basically talk about, how we used to have a gold standard that kept our financial and economic systems in check, but then we got off that standard and things have changed radically. And this is where this idea of Bitcoin comes in. Bitcoin is treated like a new gold standard for the internet. It's internet gold. And they're sort of right here. Money is a language that communicates value, and it's also backed up by trust. In the past, you could trust a piece of paper that said it was equivalent to a certain amount of gold. 
You didn't trust the paper itself that it was printed on, but you trusted the idea behind it, that the paper was as good as gold. But in the modern era, money isn't backed by gold or anything tangible. Instead, it's backed up by governments and financial institutions. They've replaced the idea of trusting money because it's equivalent to gold with the idea of trusting money because it's backed by us, your governments, your national reserve, your big banks. Antonopoulos says that while money is a language that communicates value, it's also a system of control for governments. Since controlling money gives so much power to those who control it, governments have always wanted to retain tight control over money. So here Antonopoulos delivers us a little bit of a history lesson, which he's got some great quotes here, so I'm just going to read from his book. In 1970, Richard Nixon signed the Bank Secrecy Act and turned money into a system of control. A system of control that uses money as a political tool to control who is able to send or receive it and who you are able to send money to. Ultimately, it aims for the complete surveillance of all financial transactions worldwide. Complete, total, totalitarian financial surveillance. This change in the policies of the United States of America 50 years ago has gradually percolated to almost every country in the world, to almost every financial service in the world, to almost every bank in the world. In 1970, Richard Nixon effectively deputized the financial services field to turn them into a branch of law enforcement. Law enforcement that is beyond borders, beyond jurisdictions, beyond due process, beyond political democratic control and recourse. A cop can confiscate your money. A judge can sign a warrant to freeze your accounts. A bank can do both without any authorization from anyone and there is nothing you can do about it. This applies worldwide. Now, money as a system of control supersedes all other functions of money. Antonopoulos goes on even further, he says, and I quote, Technically, you might own the money in the account, but possession is how much of the law. Let's see. What happens if you try to withdraw a large amount of money in cash? Or what happens if you cross the wrong person, go to the wrong protest, associate with the wrong organization, or vote for the wrong party? then you too might realize that your legal ownership becomes nothing more than a broken promise. Sure, maybe that isn't happening in Canada. But out of 194 countries, this model of turning money into a system of control has taken off like wildfire, because it is every dictator's wet dream. It ensures that political dissent can be snuffed at the bank, very effectively. It is one of the most effective systems of control in existence. Now this is interesting because it's from a It's from a talk given in 2019, and what's happened in Canada since this talk in recent history is that the government has in fact used financial institutions as a weapon against protesters or dissenters. They've frozen bank accounts of people who sent money in support of a large protest of truckers against the government of Canada. And in this whole incident with the government of Canada freezing people's bank accounts and taking their financial assets, there was a lot of interesting language being used, like stopping just short of calling these protesters domestic terrorists. That they used this language to justify the actions of seizing and freezing financial assets. And what sort of happened from what I understand is a a GoFundMe page was started as a fundraiser to support these protests that were heading to the capital city of Canada in Ottawa. And the idea with this fundraiser was that there was a big cost here for these truckers to drive their large trucks across the entire country and then basically set up camp in the capital city and protest. 
So the GoFundMe page was a way for citizens to help offset some of those costs for the protesters. Now, interestingly, the GoFundMe page got frozen and shut down by the government of Canada. And some of the people who sent money in support of these protests had their bank accounts frozen. This is an unprecedented move and just shows how this sort of financial control works. If there are people who are dissenters, a supporting of movement that you don't agree with as the government, it sounds like from what's happened here that you can just use your financial controls to punish those people, to freeze their accounts, to take their money, to pre- prevent people from n- donating money towards a cause that they believe in. Now, Antonopoulos goes on to talk about some of the repercussions of this sort of thing. He says, and I quote, When money is turned into a tool of control, the other functions start eroding. It is no longer the best medium of exchange because its function as a medium of exchange is subordinate to its function as a system of law enforcement, a system of control. It is no longer the best store of value for the same reasons. The system of control corrupts these functions of money, diluting them and superseding them. Now, the problem here is that modern-day money doesn't really mean anything outside of the context of governments who say that it does. In these days, it's mostly not even physical bills, it's mostly just digital bits, ones and zeros. But these ones and zeros can all be manipulated. Banks and financial institutions can and do regularly create large money supplies out of thin air as they wish. This is easy for them to do. The central banks control the money supply. They decide how much money gets created at a given time. Now, all of this is to point out the fact that our modern financial system has some serious architectural problems here. It's no longer a good product, because our money is no longer solely in our own hands. As time has gone on, central banks and governments have retained tighter and more restrictive controls on the flow of money. And more and more, they're exercising this power of using money as a system of control to freeze people's assets or freeze their bank accounts. Who knows what comes next from this? It's important also to talk about the other side. It's important to point out that in some cases, these financial tools are extremely useful to have. Like, for example, if there are actual terrorists out there and we can find their source of funds and shut it down using our financial control tools, then that's a huge win. But the risk here is that these tools become misused and overused. As Antonopoulos says, it's a dictator's wet dream to be able to exert this amount of control over people's finances. And here we get to a bit of the ideology and the philosophy behind Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. It's an ideology of detaching ourselves from these systems of control, of taking back ownership of our own money and our own finances, taking custody of it for ourselves. And the dream of a lot of these cryptocurrencies is that this is something we should have a right to do. Whether we choose to do it or not, we should still have the option of taking custody of our money in a a way that's native to the internet, that's digital native. Just like if we want, we can take as much cash as we want and store it in our house or store it in a secure location, so too we should be able to take out money from our normal financial system and store it as digital assets like Bitcoin if we want to do that. And that sort of sums up this ideology. Antonopoulos goes on to say, and I quote, Perhaps the greatest thing the internet has done for us can be summarized in one word, disintermediation. So right now, our financial systems, we have a slew of intermediaries. For an example that Antonopoulos gives, he says, say you want to pay someone for a service using a credit card. Well, to do so requires an intermediary, a point-of-sale merchant system of some kind. 
That merchant system takes a percentage or a fee of that transaction if you're paying someone for a product or service. Or if you want to pay someone who doesn't have a point-of-sale system, then you can use something like PayPal. And in doing so, if you pay over PayPal using your credit card, that means that PayPal, your credit card company, and your bank are all going to be involved as intermediaries in this transaction from you to this other person or this service that you're paying for. And in order to facilitate this transaction, these intermediaries will take 2% of the transaction as a fee for their services, for example. But not only do these intermediaries serve as intermediaries, they also serve as gatekeepers. They don't just facilitate any payment that you want to send to anyone, they also tell you who you can and cannot send payments to. Antonopoulos says about the gatekeepers, and I quote, They think it's very wrong to send money to WikiLeaks, which hasn't been convicted of doing anything wrong, ever. But it's perfectly alright to send a contribution to the Alabama chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. A fundamental problem of our platforms today is that these intermediaries are gatekeepers. The side effect is not just the 2% cost of every transaction, it is the erosion of democracy. Now, is Bitcoin going to save our democracy? Not sure. Not sure if any cryptocurrency can do that. But they are potentially tools that we can use to sort of safeguard democracy, to safeguard freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and freedom over our own money and finances. All that said, though, there are some practical concerns about Bitcoin. And these are some technical concerns with where the state of the software, the technology, is at these days. Now, for one, the biggest concern with Bitcoin, I think, is that there's a major energy usage issue. Bitcoin takes a huge amount of energy to operate. So last year, the Harvard Business Review estimated that Bitcoin currently uses about half a percentage of all global electricity production to power the Bitcoin network. And what does this energy usage actually do? Well, part of it or most of it goes towards mining more Bitcoins or creating more Bitcoins. And part of this energy usage of creating more Bitcoins goes towards securing transactions. So this is a sort of a dual-use case. Bitcoin relies on computation to secure the network through a mechanism called proof-of-work. At the heart of this mechanism is a super, super hard math problem, and this math problem is so difficult to solve that it takes many, many computers all competing against each other separately to try to solve it. And once one of these computers does solve this math problem semi-randomly, they gain the right to create the next block, the next block in the Bitcoin blockchain. And as they do so, as they create this block, they, they get the right to insert the transaction details from any of the transactions that occurred when the processing of that block was taking place. So as these computers were trying to solve this very difficult math problem, different users were sending Bitcoin transactions to other wallets. And in order to facilitate those transactions and verify those transactions, they need to make it into the new block that gets created by this super fast computer. It's only when a new block is created that contains all of that transaction information that the transaction is actually completed and verified. If the transaction does not get posted to that block, then it does not get completed. Now, not all transactions get processed. There is a typical transaction fee, but there's also a, an option to add a tip fee when you're trying to send a transaction. That tip will go to the miner of a block in order to get your transaction through. What a lot of miners will do is they'll look at all of the pending transactions that are coming through and basically pick from the top who's paying the highest transaction fee because the miner of that block gets to keep that transaction fee. 
And sometimes if your tip fee isn't high enough, then your transaction won't get through. And this can result in sometimes a huge backlog that slows down the Bitcoin network and prevents transactions from being processed or spikes the cost of a transaction fee. So the important thing to note here is that there is a technical limitation with blockchain, with the Bitcoin blockchain, with how many transactions can get processed. It's also important to note that the energy usage of Bitcoin does not equal the number of transactions. The energy isn't really about transactions at all. The energy is actually about solving an arbitrary, super difficult math problem. And the difficulty of doing this work is what secures the network. It's called proof of work for a reason. You need to show your work here. It's a hard thing to do that requires a ton of computational power. And by doing it, you're proving that you have a ton of computation at your disposal. You're proving that you have a sort of a stake in this network, that you are using your computation power to secure all of the transactions that go down on the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, this does ultimately mean that Bitcoin takes a lot of energy to maintain. And this is part of what gives it its value. The amount of energy required to mine one Bitcoin sort of sets the minimum price that a miner would be willing to sell a Bitcoin for in order to make some profit. And now to dispel some of the myths about what Bitcoin is, it definitely is not a payment system, at least not in the traditional sense. As a payment system, Bitcoin on its own is obsolete. Transactions are slow and costly, and the network can only handle something like 4 Bitcoin transactions per second. Comparatively, Visa handles something like 1,700 transactions per second, and this isn't even anywhere near the maximum number that Visa could handle. So with Bitcoin, transaction fees are high and also unreliable because not all transactions will make it into the block unless you give a higher tip fee. And this means small payments and micropayments are completely unfeasible on Bitcoin alone. To facilitate payments, we need other solutions, technical solutions built on top of Bitcoin itself or other cryptocurrencies, so that we can have some of the benefits of the security of the Bitcoin blockchain along with the benefits of faster, cheaper, and more voluminous transactions. But there are trade-offs here, and these solutions don't really exist yet. As of yet, there isn't really any cryptocurrency solution that's able to send a large amount of transactions that are fast, cheap, and secure. Generally, there's some kind of a trade-off that happens between security, speed, cost, and the volume of transactions. Now, another one of the core features of Bitcoin that is a bit of a problem, potentially, is that transactions are irreversible. And this is part of the trade-off. Say you accidentally transfer some Bitcoin to the wrong address. Well, you meant to pay Joe, but you sent money to the wrong Joe, for example. Well, oops, that Bitcoin is probably gone. You could contact the owner of the other address, maybe, and ask for it back, but there's nothing you can do to reverse the transaction and get that money back yourself. You would be hoping on the good graces of the person who you accidentally sent all that Bitcoin to. Now, proponents of Bitcoin see this mechanism as a huge benefit. The idea that you can send money to anywhere, to anyone, and it can't be taken away, the transactions can't be reversed. This is true. But it's also impractical in other ways. Say, someone hacks into your wallet or uses some malware to drain your Bitcoin from your wallet. Well, that Bitcoin is probably gone forever. You have zero recourse from a technical standpoint. Alternatively, though, there is a security aspect here in that your Bitcoin wallet is not the same as your credit card information that you put into the internet to pay for things. Someone could easily steal your credit card information and go on a spending spree. I mean, this happened to me a couple of months ago, and I have no idea how. 
And here, luckily, I had the bank as an intermediary. I could go to my bank and they can look to reverse those false transactions and issue me a new card with new numbers that nobody knows, presumably. But this can't happen with Bitcoin. If someone knows your Bitcoin wallet address, they can send things to it. And that is itself a security vulnerability, but they can't get access and spend your Bitcoin unless they also know the password to your wallet. And even then, there are some solutions, some cold storage options you can do to minimize this risk by quite a bit, though there will never be a 0% risk of having your Bitcoin hacked or stolen. So what Bitcoin is doing here or trying to do is finding a way around this system of control that's present in our traditional financial institutions. It takes ownership of your money away from governments and away from banks and puts it in your hands in a way that's native to the internet. And this has its pros and its cons, but for now, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general is still in its infancy stage. There's a a very long way to go before these technologies start replacing traditional financial systems at large scale. For now, it's still part of the fringe, and it's still a hope and a dream. The technology that's going to replace the world's financial system likely hasn't even been invented yet. And if it has, then it's probably going to be one of the existing Bitcoin competitors like Ethereum, for example. At least it's probably not going to be Bitcoin. So it's super unlikely that at any point in the future you'll actually be using Bitcoin to pay for something. But the other strong use case of Bitcoin is as a store of value. Think of it as digital gold. And part of what gives it this value is the energy usage and the history of it. For over a decade now, Bitcoin has been running and settling transactions. And none of those transactions can be reversed or altered in any way, and all of them required a certain amount of energy input in order to make them possible. It's a secure network that has never been hacked, although individuals and wallets are still themselves susceptible to hacking attacks of various kinds. Now, as is typical with technology, all technologies go through phases where they heat up too fast and then they cool off, and then at some point after a long lull, they eventually become worthwhile and start breaking into the mainstream and actually start having some utility. Right now, a lot of the hype around cryptocurrencies has to do with their ability to make people rich. And this is a perfect storm of problems. It drives people to the asset, which drives up prices, which then brings in more new people. Getting into cryptocurrency because you want to make money is like playing with fire. You're taking part in a pyramid scheme here. It is an open and transparent pyramid scheme. There is no doubting that. If you really do want to get involved with cryptocurrency, you'd be better off doing some proper research on different projects, different cryptocurrencies in this space to understand them and figure out which project or projects make the most sense to you. There are a lot of different ones out there and a lot of them have their pros and cons. And maybe you want to decide which projects you want to back or buy into if you want to buy their coins or tokens and support their work. Maybe if they have some sort of utility that you can actually use here and now, that might be a worthwhile thing to consider. Or maybe not. I mean, if you're not technically savvy, I would recommend staying away from crypto until the space has become more user-friendly. And for that, we still have a long, long way to go. Now, just as so many of the early companies of the internet are no longer around, most of the cryptocurrencies that exist now probably won't be around in a few years either. What we're really waiting for at this point is for the Google of cryptocurrency to show up, or the Apple of cryptocurrency to show up, and to bring something radically different and new and people-friendly to the table. 
Until then, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin aren't much more than speculation. As of now, they don't have a whole lot of utility to them. Some do more than others, but as a general rule, most people who are transacting in cryptocurrencies are doing it because they expect to make a return on their investment. They're in it to make money. And to me, this is where some of the problems start. I mean, we're getting away from the ideology behind Bitcoin when people are jumping in the space just to try to make money and then take that money out of the system so that they can use that money, that that profit that they've made in the traditional financial system. In reality, the hope and dream of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that they can become an alternative form of financial infrastructure, that people can move away from traditional financial institutions and adopt something that's native to the internet, that's built for the use cases of the internet. Hopefully something that's more secure and more user-friendly in the future too. And with that, I'm going to end this episode here. I hope I did a good job giving at least some overview of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. I know there's a lot to talk about and a lot to cover that might require some future episodes to dive further into, but we'll leave it here for now. So thank you everyone for listening and I'll see you all in the next one.